Hello there. Tonight, I again proudly accept that nomination for President of the United States. I have a bad feeling about this. But when the President does it, that means that it is not illegal. What? Welcome to the joy of Star Wars. I'm Simon, and with me as always are the George and Marcia Lucas of Star Wars Podcasting, Vaughn and Steele. Hi guys. Hey Simon. Hi there, how, how are you doing today? <laughs> I thought I was George. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, you gotta you gotta do it now, Vaughn. You gotta do your George Lucas. <laughs> it's poetry, it rhymes. There's poetry, so it rhymes. Special effects are a tool. <laughs> Beautiful. Oh. Uh, right. Well, this, this episode is going about as well as every other episode, and like every, <laughs> unlike every episode, we will follow a similar structure of uh, Vaughn doing all the work, introducing a topic to us, and then we will have a discussion on it afterwards. Um, and as usual, we have another uh, quiz at the end of the show because of the the wonderful work done by our wonderful friend Daniel. So thank you as always, Daniel. Um, so Vaughn, let's let's get to it. Do you want to introduce today's topic? Yeah, so um, I want to do something a little bit different today because we spend so much of our time on this podcast discussing history of like very heavy topics uh, and it gets a bit depressing, both within American history and Star Wars. So today I want to extract a bit of positivity from both of them for a hopeful cause. So today... We're going to talk about joy. What do you guys think I mean by that? Like, what direction are we going in today, if you had to pick? So my guess would be something along the lines of how, although you said it was going to be less dark and depressing, so maybe this isn't correct. Mm. But just when you immediately brought up joy is that maybe there is fleeting moments of happiness within the Star Wars universe but there can be no true sort of deeper lasting joy due to the the sort of corrupting and dark nature of, of the, the universe and the the surrounding forces which engulf um, members of uh, all the different um, species and planets. But um, that, that would be my guess, but I, I mm. genuinely have very little idea. Grim. All right. There's yeah. always uh, there's always more because uh, they can never be truly happy because we got to make more movies. Because <laughs> mm. George is cracking True. up. With. <laughs> there's always more show. Don't stop dancing. <laughs> Steal any ideas on joy? Well, it depends. Star Wars. It depends if we're talking about joy as uh, as for the characters inside the Star Wars universe, or we're talking about the joy that it brings. The people watching mm. or both it's uh very different because uh neither neither the star wars characters nor the star wars fans can ever feel true joy uh it's it's just a fact <laughs> i know true. i haven't true. i haven't felt uh i haven't felt true joy in a while <laughs> i was gonna say no one hates star wars like star wars fans so. mm. this is true absolute fact So let's jump in there, because today is a bit of an abstract concept. So first to start, while there is a lot about American history to critique and condemn, and we absolutely should do that, I want to highlight some instances of positivity with this kind of abstract history lesson on joy in American history. So the concept of joy as a historical lens is quite a difficult one to reduce to a 20-minute lecture, 
but uh, I want to start with the logical starting point, uh, the concept of the pursuit of happiness. Now, first, I define joy as different from happiness. Joy is an overwhelming feeling of happiness or pleasure to the point of a deeply felt sense of fulfillment of purpose, love for oneself or others around, for nature, this wholeness in the self. Joy is actually a very rare emotion to feel, and as it is such an attainment of happiness that provokes a deeper sense of ecstatic fulfillment, I think it's appropriate to suggest that one way of reaching joy is via the active pursuit of happiness. So historically, the phrase as used in the Declaration of Independence reads, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. That phrase uh, comes from the philosophy of John Locke, who wrote about the pursuit of happiness in his 1689, an essay concerning human understanding. Locke's idea that when one has the opportunity to pursue happiness, they have the opportunity for true liberty. Locke's interpretation of happiness is that there are two forms of it that we can call the hedonistic and the eudaimonic. To be clear, these are not Locke's terms. They come from Aristotelian philosophy that heavily influenced Locke. So hedonistic happiness is often received from pleasures of the flesh, um, it's ephemeral, immediate satisfaction. While eudaimonic happiness is derived from leading a virtuous life, following the rules, and living with prudence. Locke especially hoped that giving people a chance to pursue their own happiness would lead to more people using their free will to choose this virtuous, prudent path towards holistic eudaimonic happiness as opposed to immediate pleasures of the hedonist. Locke's interpretation was that the pursuit of happiness was the open liberty to actively seek a deeper, more fulfilling version of what he calls true and solid happiness, this eudaimonic over hedonistic. When Thomas Jefferson poached the idea for the Declaration of Independence, some scholars believe that his intention was that it is not necessarily as active anymore. The implied intention of the unalienable rights endowed by the creator to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was no longer the active definition of pursuit meant by Locke, but rather the activity itself, the vocation of happiness. It wasn't a quest for happiness, it was the whole idea of happiness that you had in your possession. The ability to not only acquire it, but actively experience it. In other words, the Declaration of Independence identifies as an unalienable right, not the right to try to be happy, but the right to actually be happy. Whichever direction you personally take the definition of pursuit does have philosophical implications for how you read your unalienable rights. Um, I do prefer to think of the pursuit of happiness as both the right to seek and obtain it for myself, however I see fit, 
and also to enjoy that happiness when I do. And here, I think, is where joy comes in. When you define your happiness for yourself, you have more of an emotional investment in the outcome. Historically, Americans are not really encouraged to define happiness for themselves. And I find that most expressive with the idea of the American dream. This grocery list of a predetermined dream for every American that we all know and can give a vague description of is not necessarily what would make most happy. Some people don't want children. Many people are not heterosexual. More people cannot financially purchase a home and a car and a white picket fence in the suburbs. The economic and social distance from the American dream as a result of wealth disparity, inequality, and injustice has only grown in the 21st century, shifting us culturally away from the intention behind the American dream in the mid-20th century when it gained such prevalence and identity. When we cannot fit this mold that we are told is the key to our happiness as American citizens, we feel as though we have failed at life. When society blocked half of our citizens from even getting on a path to the American dream in the, in the 20th century with Jim Crow laws, uh, blocks from attaining mortgages, even creating the suburbs for white people too racist to live next door to their black neighbors and cities, we defined happiness as only a pursuit for some. If you collectively define happiness as success, and success as a few boxes checked on a list, and if you then systematically refuse access to the foundations of that pre-described success to large sets of your citizens, you're actively stripping the unalienable rights we are all told to profess as Americans. Of course, the Declaration of Independence did not also extend to the Black members of society when it was written, so I am not claiming that Jefferson would agree with me here or that he was right in the first place. In my view, in the progression of American history to rectify who counts as an American and rightfully expand our collective identity, structural blocks have progressed to continue to limit who is allowed access to happiness by defining what that happiness is for us and the ways in which it can be attained. As a result of these prescribed definitions and paths, we have lost the thread of what it is to pursue or have a pursuit of happiness. I believe in this way, the American dream is an enemy to the pursuit of happiness, and that it is not only a structural weapon to refuse many even the hope of attaining success and therefore happiness that they are told they want, but it also robs us of the almost Lockean idea of discovering our eudaimonic pursuit where I believe this overwhelming intrinsic feeling of joy comes from. Now, turning to Star Wars. Joy is both an emotional concept and an entity of the Force. In Season 6, Episode 12 of Clone Wars, we are introduced to the five Force priestesses. Anger, confusion, sadness, joy, and serenity. These five manifestations of conscious emotion are strands of one Force-sensitive being who died an indefinitely long time before the events of Clone Wars. 
Her being as one with the living force resides on the wellspring of life, where Yoda seeks the priestesses for guidance in preserving his spirit after his physical body dies. I find the choice of the priestesses a fascinating one because it is unclear if there are more of them or if these five emotional manifestations are the core of the force, if the force is a manifestation of emotions at all. I love the choice of emotions to highlight as well and the order in which they are introduced as though anger, confusion, sadness, joy, and serenity are stages of processing hardship but could also be an arbitrary ordering itself. Two seem positive, two seem negative, and one seems neutral. But altogether, they create the complexities of sentience and blur their categorizations. Is the anger righteous? Is the serenity fleeting? Is the confusion a comfort a la ignorance is bliss? There's so much ambiguity around them, and we could analyze emotions for days, but I want to want to discuss the choice of joy. Joy, not happiness, or contentment, or pleasure. It's joy. Joy, as I said earlier, is not merely happiness, but an active choice to exceed happiness and pleasure. It's elation, and sometimes that comes from a selfless act. Sometimes it's someone else's actions that create joy in you. Sometimes it's the decision to sit with the emotion of happiness, to feel it so intrinsically that it becomes ecstatic. And joy in oneself inspires joy in others. It's powerful and it's deep and it's so intensely felt that it's a gorgeous reminder of being alive. Joy, in my view, is what happens when you pursue happiness with an active intention and you invest in the journey to your happiness So that when you reach it, that happiness exceeds your expectations and becomes joy. There are not many instances of pure joy in Star Wars. But I would argue that we witness most of them from Anakin. We haven't gotten to my defense of the prequels on this show yet. But if you follow me on Twitter, you may have seen it once or twice or many times. Um, My view of Anakin is that he was a deeply abused child, taken from his mother into an emotionally abusive system, and stunted emotionally, told that any expression of love is bad. And it is my view that this emotional abuse causes moments of pure intrinsic joy in him, if only for a moment, when he thinks he has found his way out of the systems that hurt him ultimately causing the deepest distress and pain that leads him to lose his capacity for joy later on. The first instance is during the pod race in Phantom Menace, when he believes truly that he has just won freedom for himself and his mother. And the second, kind of collectively, are the scenes in Attack of the Clones as he falls in love with Padme, such as the overwhelming happiness and giggling in the countryside of Naboo when Anakin feels as though he has escaped with the woman he loves, severed himself from a system that says his joy is wrong, and this love is bad, and this ecstatic elation is evil, only to be reminded that she is a senator and they will never extract themselves fully from the systems that hold them apart. This connection is not necessarily a theory, but an exploration of interpretations of an emotion. In the U.S., the concept of joy has changed from the time when the pursuit of happiness was written as an unalienable right into the Declaration of Independence. 
Our collective idea of what it is to pursue happiness, to attain joy, is a complicated narrative of how society views success, emotions, and what should give one pleasure. We've talked on this show before about the chosen one philosophy. American exceptionalism, individualism, manifest destiny, the American dream, all of these buzzwords and frameworks that tell us that to be successful as Americans, we have to follow these set descriptions of what that means. We have to hit certain points and check certain boxes to say, I did this on my own, climbed the social ladder, acquired the correct things, and amassed a small fortune, and therefore I am successful and happy. But I think that identity and description of happiness as a result of predetermined measures of success is a smoke show that leaves all of us feeling a bit like Anakin. Following any of those frameworks, individualism, exceptionalism, American dream, etc., isn't a pursuit of happiness. It's a pursuit of what we've been manipulated to believe is happiness. But true overwhelming happiness, pure joy, that comes from pursuing something deep within your heart, actively, selflessly, and socially. So my conclusion today is that we can see parallels of lost joy within the U.S. and Star Wars narratives. But what I really want to end on is a plea to listeners to pursue their own happiness, whatever that means for them, however they want to define it. It may take years to figure out what you want. It may take a lifetime. It may be self-evident, but I hope you discover it for yourself, pursue it and embrace it, to have not only the happiness you want, but the deeper ecstatic feeling of fulfillment of purpose, of joy. The American dream is a fucking failure of imagination. And I would challenge you to think outside of what you are told you want, what positive rights you are given, what direction is expected, and find a way to actually intrinsically, thoughtfully, passionately, powerfully pursue the happiness that you believe is right for you and unique to you, because only through that rebellious pursuit is their joy at the end of it. Well, thank you as always, Vaughn. That was um, insightful and really made me think. Um, my, my kind of immediate reaction to that is to pick up, not specific on Star Wars, although we'll come back to that in a minute, but was your um, retort against the American dream and mm. this concept of you know you have the, the stable job and the, the the pretty wife and the picket fence and all that kind of thing and i've thought for a while now and it's certainly not an original thought and people have put it far more eloquently than i, I ever could but it's uh the sort of establishment of the american dream is um uh, a form of control by um you know a capitalist government essentially in order to mm -hmm. kind of keep people keep towing the line you know as far as you know uh, this is the the order of, of of things as it should be, and um, if you just kind of keep doing the things that are square within um, your your lane, and you you follow these things that are sort of a quote unquote established good, then that that will lead to a happy life. And if you're not able to attain that for yourself, then don't worry. Kind of work hard on the lower rungs, and then maybe the next generation will follow up, and they'll be able to have the American dream. And 
um, you know, the, the American dream doesn't take into consideration, or it, it certainly didn't use to into consideration things like, you know, workers' rights or, you know, voting rights or, mm. you know, women's rights or things like that. And one of the most interesting things about Star Wars is that it's a constant battle between this established power, which is using control to um, manipulate and, and, and of course, the, the citizens of, of, you know, of the Empire, and the people who are rebelling against that and fighting against that. And obviously the fact that the, the, the films, certainly the original trilogy, are kind of based on two wars, essentially, that kind of came out of it. You know, you've got, kind of got the iconography of, of the Nazis, and then you have the, the jungle warfare off, um, off Vietnam. And it's, um, yeah, it, it's a fascinating thing to, to kind of extrapolate that out further and talk about something like joy, which leads us to conversations around actual joy in Star Wars and how that concept is or isn't presented. Because as you say, there are fleeting moments of, you know, relief or happiness or things like that. You know, the the original trilogy, for instance, you know, we we see great moments of immediate happiness when they, you know, blow up a Death Star or or Mm. whatever. But, you know, blowing up the Death Star didn't end um, end the Empire, certainly in the first film anyway you know that that just stopped a, a vicious weapon from being able to be used and as we saw they were rebuilding in in uh in the second of the original trilogy so um yeah the, the concept of of joy perhaps it is only seen in fleeting moments in the prequels and you know maybe when he's he's younger and he's he's pod racing and he's, he's finding uh happiness there maybe there is joy um to be held there maybe it's when he marries Padme at the end of episode two, if I remember that correctly. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe there's there's joy there where he he is able to break away to some degree from the the lack of love he has in his life and and um, find a partner who he is he feels he's destined with. Maybe that is is joy in comparison to the um, as I said, fleeting moments of happiness that we see throughout the rest of the films because the, the films are very much based on. You know, you have a you have an empire, and you have people who are struggling to the death to try and stop it from consuming the lives of all those around. And you know, as we we seen in other media, people are giving their lives so that people have a chance to defeat the empire. And you know, there's there's other emotions and other things going on there, but there's there's no joy to be had, as it were. So um, I think it's a it's a fascinating thing to discuss in in, in the context of Star Wars. And um, yeah, I'd be interested, Vaughn. Uh, sorry, Steele, if you've got your own kind of thoughts, just based off what uh, what Vaughn was saying. I was just uh, I was just thinking of um, there's a great there's a great scene in Revenge of the Sith um, where Padme tells Anakin that she's pregnant, and mm-hmm. there's that wonderful reaction because she's terrified, obviously, because it, everything is a secret. Their marriage, the fact that they're together. All that is obviously a secret, and uh, it would mean so many repercussions for, especially Anakin, and um, and Anakin's just like we don't just we don't have to worry about that right now. Like I, I'm just this is incredible. Like this is brilliant news, mm-hmm. and it's uh, this is a happy moment, the happiest of my life, and I I love that because uh, she's she's thinking because she's had obviously had a lot of time to think about this, and she's she's saying what what are we gonna do, and. Uh, and he's just he's just saying, well, well, let's just be happy first. And I love that. It's a lovely moment. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's weird when I think of when I think of the American dream and I think of the the image the image of the the nuclear family and the picket fence and the the small house and all of that I weirdly it always ends up looking like the the Nazi propaganda posters of the Aryan family mm-hmm. with the uh with the uh trying to get women to have more babies and uh yeah just uh it, if i think about that i always end up uh, i always end up seeing the that exact image in my head of the the posters from history class and it's just just always reminds me of that no nah, it's all it's, it's all the same <laughs> i i do think that there is some merit there um when i was a kid and growing up in the us and public school and everything um I'm sorry about that, by the way. Yeah, cheers, thanks. Um, The American dream really was kind of, it was something we talked about. Like, I remember there being kind of propaganda about the American dream in classrooms. And there was this expectation that you lived at home with your heterosexual parents and you had that kind of family structure, the expected family structure. And where I grew up just outside of Philadelphia was not like that um, oppressive if you didn't fit that family dynamic, but it was a shock. And it was something that was talked about if you didn't fit that family dynamic. Like if your parents were divorced, people knew about it. And that was, I mean, the late 90s and very early 2000s when I got to kind of high school that really kind of petered away I think um and we started talking about things more critically like the American dream at that point in time of like the late 2000s early 2010s um so I would be curious what it's like now to be in American public school if there is still that kind of expectation and dynamic or how that changes geographically but what I'm saying is that the American dream very much was part of like what I learned as being an American citizen, what to expect as an American citizen. And it took me a long time to break out of it and realize like it is a failure of, an, of imagination. It's, it's one way to live life, but not the only way to live life. And it's the way that is encouraged to live your life because it's the one that's most profitable for the system. Um, the capitalist system, as you said, Simon, and the kind of political power, um, as you were hinting at, Steele. And that realization that it's not for your happiness, it's for the efficiency of a system, really is quite upsetting, depressing, shocking, I don't know, whatever word you want to use, but it pissed me the fuck off. Um <laughs> And it, it is fundamentally, if, if you really think about it, if I really think about it, I think that it is fundamentally an enemy to the idea and the concept and the philosophical reasoning behind the phrase, the, the pursuit of happiness. No one else gets to tell you what your happiness is or how you achieve it, as long as you're not like murdering people or harming other people or infringing on other people's unalienable rights then you have a right to pursue whatever happiness is right for you in whatever way you want. 
And the fact that our system, we could go in so many directions with this historically, but, and with all types of um, um, kind of socioeconomic or cultural or whatever lenses you want to take there for so many different diverse groups of people. Um, but fundamentally, our system does strategically and structurally put up blocks in the way of certain groups who are not white male landowners um, from pursuing this, this accepted social idea of what success is and therefore what happiness is. And it, it really does feel like a rebellious act to say, I'm not going to have kids or I'm not going to get married, or I'm not going to live in a suburb, or I'm not going to do the job that is expected of me and stay there while I am being um, mistreated and underpaid and undervalued just because the thing you do is get promotions and move up the corporate ladder. That, that whole idea, I think, is really something that we have been fighting hard against in the 21st century and I think it's really really coming to a head right now in 2023 with so many industries on strike and so many unions popping up not popping up that doesn't give credit to the people who work their asses off to organize their workplaces and I do think we are seeing a, a real rebellion against the pre-described, predetermined idea of what success and happiness are as presented through the American dream. So I think that's really interesting. I think um, I'll, I'll tie this back to Star Wars in a second, but just to touch upon what, what you said there, Vaughn, um, I think the reason we are seeing things like unions um, coming more to the front now and we are seeing workers' rights being pushed more and we are seeing things like the government actively, you know, certainly in the UK and pro pro I think in the US as well, trying to actively go against workers' rights and, um, you know, talk down about people going on strike and, you know, how that's um, impacting, you know, everybody else and how selfish teachers are because they want more money and things like that. It's because the system has been failing for so long and, you know, the the rate of, of pay increases has been so disproportionate to how in... in inflation has risen and things like that and so people have been get, are getting more and more shortchanged by the system that has been built around them and there is going to be a natural if it's not happening now there's going to be a natural point in which things start to break down even further as we have other advancements things like technological advancements which means more jobs are at risk and as we see a, a continued separation of of power and particular of wealth between those who have and those who do not and suddenly you know the you know it's been talked a lot about how you know the middle class is disappearing but it's it's you know far more the case that you know people who are quote-unquote middle class are actually much closer to those who are poor than those who are actually rich and we are seeing a, a further separation almost to the point of sort of star wars levels of you know living up in higher towers and, and mm -hmm. having spaceships they'll fly you know we are getting closer and closer to that visual representation of the haves and the haves not as a result of you know decades of living in this this system that is built around 
um, bringing more wealth and power to, to those who already have it. And sort of tying this back into Star Wars, it kind of made me think, well, as you were speaking there, how does that, how do, how do we have similar conversations about the everyday people in Star Wars? And how do we reflect upon their lives? And what kind of joy is actually being brought? You know, if we were to try to extrapolate this out beyond what we actually see on screen, how many people are actually living with any kind of joy in in the, the planets that we see? And how many are actually just trying to scrape by, even if they're not mm. criminals, even if we put them to one side? you know, the the, the, the quote-unquote the quote criminals and the rebellious people, you know, people who are just trying to go about their everyday lives, even people within certain amounts of power, you know, even if they're getting up to sort of senator levels of power, how many are actually experiencing joy and how many people are just doing what they have to do to survive and feeling that depression? And, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, you know, Star Wars, you know, not breaking any news here, is fictional and, you know, we are continuing to add more and more layers to a story which was set up essentially as a sort of retelling of, of a children's adventure. But as we apply more um, more sort of um, rigour to the, the stories and, and add more layers to it, I, I do think it does start to un, un, unpeel some of the, the layers of our own society. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact that we have these people who, you know, like like what we saw, saw in uh, the episode or the our previous episode when we were looking at um, Andor, you know, we had sort of worker bees who are part of the um, part of the empire and how, you know, boxed in their lives are. And they might not be evil, but they're, you know, playing a part to, to contribute. And there's no, there was no joy in those people's lives. You know, they, they were just, you know, another worker bee as part of the system and reframing the, the sort of enterprise of, of this empire and, and of this system that's built throughout Star Wars, reframing that as, are your, does your life, life even have the concept of joy at the moment? Or are you so oppressed and you've been so oppressed for so long that you don't even realise that joy could be something that you could strive for? And it's not so much that people maybe aren't joyful or joyous right now, it's that that is not even an attainable goal for them because of the, the system in which they're living in, the system which is uh, oppressing them and that they're continuing to contribute to. So it's um, it's a fascinating thing to, to reframe um, all Star Wars media now after after what you've uh, presented to us today, Vaughn. Thank you, Simon. Um, there's one thing that I want to pull out of that um i agree with a lot of what you just said but one thing on in terms of star wars that i want to pull out is another kind of example of joy that we do get to see and that comes from clone wars there's a clone and steel might be able to help me out with this but there's a clone who deserted the clone army and um falls in love with a twi'lek and they live on the kind of outskirts of this one planet on a farm, have two children, and the clone army like comes and they there there are these intense philosophical conversations about him as a deserter. Um, and he says that he really weighed up his options. He saw that the clone army was trying to use him, that he was 
born to be a soldier and he wanted more out of his life. So he left and he pursued his own happiness. He pursued his own peace and living with his wife and children, although that is a presentation of the American dream, it is for him and philosophically within that a really powerful, beautiful presentation of the pursuit of happiness and joy and finding that for yourself. And for some people, your happiness may be the American dream. That may be something that you genuinely, truly, intrinsically, passionately want for yourself. And that's amazing if you can decide that for yourself. Um, but I do think that that example from Clone Wars is, is one that I could have and should have added here because... That episode's one, just really good. Um, but two, it it really shows the struggles of identifying for himself and fighting with himself against his kind of predetermined nature, what he was told he wants, what he was manipulated into believing, him fighting against that and finding what was true and right for him. I remember uh, watching that episode as a kid and... Uh... I remember just just watching it and being like, oh, he's a deserter. Okay, cool. Uh, that makes sense. Um, and then watching the the kids go out into the into the field and act, act accidentally turn on the ship of droids and then watch the whole fight scene and then Rex leaves. And it's just, I just remember thinking to myself, that was a good episode. Yeah, I like that as a kid. And then I remember rewatching it um, when I watched my whole, when I did a Clone Wars rewatch over the last couple of years, and I remember thinking to myself, "God, this is this is really saying something." <laughs> it's uh, really, really, uh, really trying to make an effort here. And, uh, and what I love about that episode is it's it's through the perspective of Rex after he's just been injured, and um, it works really well showing that he he at first once he realizes that he's a deserter thinks oh okay you're a coward you're a traitor you ran off you did i've got to turn you in it's my it's my job you know i have to do this and and then he spends some time with the family and uh starts to understand the draw in this life and uh, why someone would want it and uh, it's the first time i feel that uh, rex really opens his eyes and thinks anything past the war and i really i really love that and uh I love that um, after the droids attack him and the deserter, uh, Cutler Quain, his name is, um, they hold off against the droids together and Rex realises that he's not a coward. He, he, left, he left because he had to. And I love the, the mm -hmm. conversation that Cut has about losing his entire battalion, um, him being the only survivor. And I, I love the idea that he had that realisation that he was just a pawn in someone else's game. And uh, he's his own person, and that's that's one of the big, one of the big differences between the droids and the clones is that the clones are human beings, and uh, they are free. They they are free to make their own choices, um, at least hypothetically. Of course, if they make certain choices, they'd mm -hmm. get uh, repercussions from the uh, the army that they're a part of. But. Uh, yeah, that that episode. I remember. I remember really loving it when I was a kid, and then watching it again and thinking to myself, "Wow, this is this is really something." Um, I also love that uh, Rex goes back, uh, goes back to the army at the end, and he, his joy, his 
his satisfaction his uh, all of that comes from comes from his brothers and supporting his brothers and helping and fighting alongside them and that's what brings him joy and he knows that mm-hmm. he can't he can't desert his brothers and he believes in the cause and i love that i love that even though he has he has this time where he sees what a family life could be like and what what a peaceful what a peaceful existence can be like he still thinks he still goes back knowing that this is where he believes he belongs and i i love that you get those two you get those two contrasting uh, belief systems and they they both understand each other because Cutler Quain also loved his brothers, but they were all killed and uh, he didn't want to go back. And I, it's a brilliant episode. I also, um, it's really interesting hearing about the American dream from someone who grew up in the States. Cause mm. for me, it's, for me, it's something I learned about in history. And um, I think the first time I uh, thought about like the first time I found out um how much of this is uh, his um, taught in schools in, in America and how much of it is part of the culture was uh, probably when I was watching Kindergarten Cop as a kid and they were pledging allegiance <laughs> to the flag. And I was thinking to myself, Dad, do they, as I, as I said to my dad, I was like, do they do this in all schools? And he was like, yeah, this is a thing they do. <laughs> and I was like, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> the idea of uh, pledging allegiance to the Union Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Just just goes along with my theory that all media, all all American history, could be represented through Arnold Schwarzenegger and his movies. But, um, <laughs> oh, absolutely! It's another podcast, Simon. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's our fourth fourth podcast. Together. Uh. Uh, but yeah, it's a fa- it's a, it's a funny concept, as you say, uh, steel to to imagine British school children standing up and pledging allegiance to the Queen or the King, as it would be now, um, and you know having the flag flying. Um, yeah, it, it's. I, I think it's something we've asked about before with with you, Vaughn. But mm. as you kind of get more distance to it, and as you become a, a, a more just educated person, both both in, in textbook and in just living your life, um, how 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 do you start to see both that and also how that is then maybe reflected in media, and how they would, you know, think about and consider these ideas? Well, I do see it as indoctrination and brainwashing um not to be not to be one of those people who's like everything is a dystopian novel but um <laughs> but I everything always, is a dystopian novel <laughs> like everything is i i always think about how in dystopian novels like 1984 or brave new world for instance um you get this idea of repeated phrases and it's the repetition of the phrases that makes you the the people within the dystopian society believe them. So like in Brave New World, there are these kind of like hatching centers where they make kind of test tube babies, essentially. Um, and they're all in nurseries as babies within this center with this repetitive kind of Uh, recording of people saying the core tenets of society um, so that they're ingrained and brainwashed even as children to know these phrases and then when they're a little older they have to recite them uh, over and over again as they grow up so there's that and then there, there are of course the party phrases in 1984 and 
It is wild to me that people don't think the Pledge of Allegiance is like that. Um, I certainly didn't when I was younger and when I was reading those books in high school. Well, I only read Brave New World. I didn't read 1984 in high school. Um, But I didn't make a connection between those when I was in high school. It wasn't until I left the U.S. and realized nobody else does this that I was like, (laughs) oh, my God, that's like really grim, actually. (laughs) It's really fucked up. And I do think that that's, I mean, it's, it's not as seriously dystopian as 1984, I guess, but a lot of things are, uh, but <laughs> I, I do think that it, it kind of comes together with this idea of the American dream that it is repeated so much in school or in our media or in just the culture and the expectation, the, the pressure of the expectation in society wherever you look in the states at least in the 90s when i was growing up there was this idea of the american dream and even more so before then and when you looked at your grandparents or looked at your great-grandparents um there was this pressure of it and it's that repetition of seeing it and believing that this is what you want and this is what you're supposed to want and this is obviously what you're going to do and the second you can't fit that framework you become less of a citizen in some way or less of a patriot in some way because you're not fulfilling this like deeply fundamentally american thing that you're told you want um and i just find it really eye-opening to put it into these frameworks of Maybe it is only something you want because you've been told that and you've been told that a million times Mm. and it's been reinforced in society and media and all of these things. Um, Maybe if you really think about it, you want something else. Or maybe when you really think about it, it is what you want. And that's amazing as long as it's the choice that you're making for yourself. Is That's really what I want to underline here. Absolutely. We should probably close up there since we still have the quiz to do. But Vaughn, I would just like to thank you again for for presenting um, your writing here today. And I I will genuinely um, try and and reframe my viewings off um, Star Wars content and think about this this idea of joy and whether people either on or off screen are either experiencing joy or in a position where they could later down the line experience joy so um i will i will take this one away with me so thank you for for presenting such a a good one today thanks simon for me uh i I just thinking about thinking about the american dream i just i always think of uh of mice and men because of how much in english class they talked about the american dream towards of of mice and men but in, in of mice and men that their want of having a farm and their own land and all of that came at a time where it was it was during the Great Depression where nobody had anything, and that was that was a great that was a great attainment if you could get something like mm. that. And uh, yeah, just just the idea that that was that was in a time where there was there was no there was no possibility for anyone. So of course that was the dream. Well, <laughs> it's all you could have. I I I will say with that that. Yeah, there there are different iterations of the American dream, and um, the nuclear family obviously comes with the 1950s. Before that, it is this kind of um, idea of 
individualism and American exceptionalism in these ways that we've talked about before on this podcast, especially. Um, that's in the Chosen One episode, if you're curious. But there's there's this idea that because you're an American, you can do uh, great things. Every American can do great things because every American is special and they're individual and they have a drive. And I do think at times that has been helpful for people, especially like in the Great Depression, um, as a, a genuine goal to keep going and get through the absurd hardships that were that people were facing at that moment, which some of them were kind of policy decisions that they should have acted faster on. And that's a different discussion entirely. But it is undeniable that people were going through one of the most difficult times uh, economically and financially in American history so widely. And I, I, I think in some ways there can be good aspirations of the American dream. There can, there can be good applications of it. But I think overall, especially between the 50s and today, um, it has become such a negative thing. And in the 80s, most especially, I think that was that was most evident um, under Reagan and this whole like almost exactly opposite use of the American dream from the Great Depression, where it was this arrogance of how far can I push the American dream and push my wealth and not just be happy with my one house and my two and a half kids and my beautiful wife and the car and the picket fence, all those things, mm. my, my modest promotion at work. It was how high can I get on this ladder? How many beach houses can I have? How much wealth can I attain? And that was all kind of promoted and celebrated in the 80s. Even though Reagan was running the Morning in America, it's Morning in America again. And in 1984, um, his re-election campaign, that I think is a really damning look at the American dream and the trajectory that it has been on between the fifties and, and now that was when it was at its most sinister of telling people you can still attain this, but it's being exploited as far as it can possibly go by the few who actually are able to do that. And plot twist, most of them were white men in wall street. And it shifted the American dream out of the suburbs and out of like a factory worker getting promoted to line manager, whatever, to investors on Wall Street and brokers on Wall Street. Uh, and they're now the recipients of the American dream, which means everyone else, the factory workers, the um, union workers, anywhere else in America do not have access to the American dream anymore. And I think that's why when I was a young kid in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was still like a prominent thing that we were talking about. But by the financial crash in the late 2000s, we were being way more critical about the American dream in high school. Um, that's sorry. That was a real tangent there and a real vent. That, I, I do that, think that's, that that's, okay. I mean, that's the trajectory that we've been on. And that's why we're seeing such a rebellion against the American dream now. I think, yeah. 
I think a lot of that comes from um, a, a lot of that comes from just the, the the time we live in now with the internet and everyone become everything becoming more diverse and with with the internet you can you, it's not just it's like the difference between when the rise of photojournalism during the Vietnam War where people started mm. finding out about things that were happening for the first time properly without it being edited and uh, I feel like it's the same now where you can hear a story from a person on the other side of the world that, that is that becomes viral just because enough people hear about it and I think it's the it's it's the first time where you can see it from a small scale as well as from a large scale and I just it's very it's very interesting how that's affected people. I think that's that's a huge part of why mm. why unions are be- seem to be becoming stronger and uh, so much more frequent. And it's just very it's just very interesting. I think just people being able to wise up a lot easier than they could in the past because it's harder for people to keep things from people now. Yeah, I think one of my favorite things to see on the internet is Americans learning about how the French go on strike. <laughs> oh, it's gorgeous. It's so good. <laughs> if you're American Absolutely. and you don't know how the French go on strike, you should look that up right now. <laughs> yeah, including cutting power to those in power, mm-hmm. which was um, a technique. And, and, and even setting up like full ass grills on mm-hmm. the the tram tracks the and yeah. just like rolling it down with the picket as you're protesting through Paris, just rolling this like barbecue grill with it. Brilliant. Fantastic. <laughs> Oh, I love, I love that the so French. Much. Love the French. They're incredible <laughs> at protesting. Food culture and revolution culture coming together. Mm. Perfect. <laughs> incredible. Absolutely. And just to summarize our, our thoughts on the American dream, then we're saying that we should reject Wall Street mm-hmm. and we should get a, a moisture farm on Tatooine instead. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's what we want. That is what we are saying. We're saying <laughs> fuck Cloud City. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, this actually leads us very nicely into Daniel's quiz. Oh. Which is um, a galactic po- politics quiz. Oh. And oh joy. O- opens up and opens up with uh, Obi Wan Kenobi saying, "Oh no, I'm not brave enough for politics." That's what Daniel has down here. So yes, as always, Daniel, thank you very much. You are a superstar for putting this together. Um, so shall we shall we get into this, or is there any last final points on joy before we we dive into into the quiz? I was just thinking that we should probably do a part two on this episode because I was just thinking about we haven't we haven't talked about the Jedi and uh, their the way that uh, they're they're supposed to pursue joy, and that goes back to the idea of uh, hedonistic joy and eudaimonic joy and. Mm. Uh, and uh, talking about, say, in Andor, for example, you have the small community of miners and uh, they have their own joy and self-worth through their community. And mm. uh, that comes through in the final episode of the, in the, when they revolt against the Empire. And I just think there's so much more to talk about with this topic. And I think we should do a part two because I, I've really enjoyed this and I think we should carry on because there's a lot. It's a very broad topic. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose when we do something more thematic like this, as you say, we could start applying it uh, to all areas of Star Wars and we have a, a lot to work with. So, um, yeah, sounds like that could be an episode two coming uh, at some point in the future then. Okay, let's um, let's dive into the quiz then. So, 
Uh, as normal, I believe there are 15 questions, so let's see how, uh, how quickly we manage to get through these and how well uh, you guys actually do with answering them, because mm. as always, I know very little of these in advance. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what's the name of the Supreme Chancellor who was voted out of office and succeeded by Shiv Palatine? Uh, Palatin? Valorin. Palpatine, sorry, Palpatine. I might have... Valorin? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Finnis uh, Valorin. I yeah. love that his name's Finnis. Finnis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love Finis it. Finnis Valorin. Uh, played by the, the great Terence Stamp, uh, famous for playing General yeah. Zod in Superman 2. Um, very quick, very quick story about... Uh, <laughs> about this so he wasn't paid that much for being chancellor valorum and he didn't have a great time shooting because uh it was the whole prequels green screen thing and um but his agent was saying about no just trust me on this because george lucas he's a he's a big guy with uh giving away giving away like bonuses to uh, people and getting like giving things to his mm-hmm. cast and crew so just you know stick stick with it trust me on this one because there's a there's a story about how george lucas um during the making of the original trilogy gave a shit ton of money to uh, his crew um which is a, which is a lovely story but um so so he stuck it out and then a couple a, a little while after they finished shooting he, he said um they said oh we've got a uh, there's something from uh, for you from george lucas and uh and he's like, oh, finally, here we go. This is what this is what uh, my a- agent was telling me about. And he looked, and it was a uh, Phantom Menace uh, pencil stationery set. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Beautiful. Well, who wouldn't want that? Um, I think I probably okay, had about right. five, and <laughs> all the pencils yeah, ended I was up gonna being say, destroyed. You wouldn't need to be. <laughs> you wouldn't need to be given that. You'd already have it. Right. Uh, shall we move on to uh, question two then, which was, uh, which is, how was Senator Onaconda Far of Rodia assassinated, and who killed him? He was uh, poisoned by his um, by his like assistant um, or something. Yeah, by his assistant. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. His drink was poisoned by Lolo Purr's Lolo. His aid. Yes. Sorry, so, sorry, sorry, Vaughn, well do you want to say that again? Lolo. <laughs> Lolo. This is great. Um, this is the first time, for, for those listening, this is the first time that uh, me and Vaughn have recorded separately. <laughs> we, always, we always record sharing the same mic um, in the same room. So uh, I love during the quizzes, occasionally I'll just get a look from Vaughn being like, what? <laughs> and I'm, missing, yeah. I'm really missing that right now. <laughs> yeah. I... I knew this one too, and I was gonna say poisoned by his aid, but you beat me to it. So poisoned by his aid. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, that caught Correct. me off guard. It made me think of the South Park episode with Jared. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, right. Okay. Moving on to question three. Uh, what was the capital of the Confederacy of Independent Systems during the Clone Wars? Oh, where uh, Lux Bonteri is, right? Is it is it Onderon again? No, wait. What was Lux Bonteri's homeworld called? Um, I can't. I don't remember. But I love Lux Bonteri. That's my final answer, so, Simon. Where Lux Bonteri is? 
where he and Ahsoka meet and fall in love. When when she's like, I'm not so bad, am I? And then there's a male gaze shot of him looking Ahsoka yeah. up and down. <laughs> yeah. And then she totally objectifies okay. him back. Yeah. Hey, to be okay, honest, so this answer- is this is later on in the in the show where um she actually gets some clothes yes, instead yeah, of yeah, the yeah. Uh, the the mini skirt and the the boob tube that George Lucas mandated that she <laughs> How old is she again? Okay. Oh, she's 14. Oh, put her in a put her in a boob tube. Let all those uh let all, let all those kids <laughs> oh, be there. No. They'll love like, Thank you, George, for your <laughs> your continued contributions to the show. <laughs> so you're welcome. The Is there station reset? <laughs> <laughs> the ca- capital of the Confederacy of Independent Systems during the Clone Wars. So the answer I have down here is Raxus Syncundus. I also accept uh, Raxus or Raxalon. Raxalon. That sounds like a fucking Digimon. Uh, <laughs> doesn't it? Raxalon so, is uh, the name of yes. an evil Time Lord in Doctor Who, actually. And uh, oh. there's a there's a planet in Star. There's another planet. There's a Rexus planet called Rexus Prime, which I believe is a junk right. planet. And uh, that's mm-hmm. a that's a really fun place to play in in uh, Force Awakens. Force Awakens. Uh, Force Unleashed. Mm-hmm. There you go. Okay. Uh, so that was the capital of the Confederacy of Independent Systems. And now we're on to what planet did Separatist Senator Mina? Bonteri oh. represent. Oh well, that was. We're not going to get this because we didn't. Know it's it where Lux Bonteri is. <laughs> <laughs> it's what we just got wrong it's... twice. <laughs> was was she the senator of Onderon? Because she was. Yeah. Was. Yeah, because they okay. have because the Onderon arc because Lux is involved in that arc because he's the because it's his planet as well. Right. Okay. And then he gets to do a little, a little flirting with Ahsoka, where she's showing him how to use a droid popper. That sounds naughty, but it's a type of right. grenade. Yes. Okay. So this <laughs> next question is purely for George Lucas. So I only want George Lucas to answer this one. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready, okay, guys. I'm ready. How old was Padme Abadala when she was elected <laughs> Queen of Naboo? Oh, now I think about it, I should have put her in a boob tube too. <laughs> <laughs> but she was also 14 wasn't she she was 14 yes. i can't tell you what it what it is about that age <laughs> gross okay. moving swiftly now, on from george he was tasteful um, enough to uh, not put her in a put padme in a midriff until uh, attack of the clones sorry the second yeah. best star wars movie the second best star wars movie thank you thank you yes I'm going to I'm going to start I'm going to start timing when we start recording these episodes. I'm going to have two separate timers. I'm going to have one that to time how long it takes to talk about Attack of the Clones and one now for how long it takes to talk about Andor because both of them it's just like, oh, there it is. Yes. I'd also uh, like to know the split on how long it takes us proportionally to get through a full topic of Vaughn doing research and then us just struggling to get through these questions in time because we're just doing impressions it, and it really talking, is talking about Midwest. two different podcasts <laughs> there's a there is a point around 55 minutes where it becomes a different podcast every Very time much so. 
And I like to think that brings both the sort of academic rigor that you bring, mm. Vaughn, and then the sort of contributions to myself and still can add to that. <laughs> and then just sort of the unhinged nature of three idiots going, yeah, it's this planet. Yeah. And then shouting about midriffs. So, uh, mm. yes, uh, very much a, a tonal shift. It's, but I like to think it rhymes. So It's poetry, it rhymes. It's poetry, <laughs> so they rhyme. I'll tell you, I'll tell right. you about joy. <laughs> You know I've okay, got a wrench. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Okay, this is another uh, Amidala question, but this one has got nothing to do with age, so hopefully this will be more appropriate. Okay. Uh, in the Clone Wars, we see Amidala successfully block a bill to fund more clone troopers with an inspiring speech. Who does she mention at the beginning of this speech? Tala. Is that her name, Tala? She's her... Close. Her... Um, age. She's one of her handmaidens. Exactly. Yeah, one of Padme's handmaidens. So it's uh, I've got down here Tekla. Oh, Tekla. Mene. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I love one, one of the. Handmaidens. I love that speech, and that speech is actually going to be the basis for one of our future episodes um, on war profiteering. Spoiler. And how we're for it. Okay. <laughs> uh, are you are you pro or against um, war profiteering? Me personally. I'm yeah, just oh, like super, super pro-war profiteering. Love <laughs> war profiteering. It's I mean, how else best. are you going to make money in this day and age, you know? Exactly. It's either war, yeah, to toilets, these... or porn, you know? <laughs> I was going to say, in the Star like, George is only giving these characters so much to work with, and most of the time, and it's, it's not called, like, Star, star Peace, is it? It's called Star Wars. It's so called... You've got to make money somehow. It's called so. Star Wars, yeah. So, exactly, yeah. so... Like they're just making it out of what they've been given, so you know, let's let, let's be more respectful of the war profiteers. Right. Um, question seven: uh, What was the first capital of the New Republic? Ooh, I'm guessing by first capital you don't mean Coruscant. It's probably some. Uh, I don't have. It's probably the some uh, Knights of the Old Republic stuff. Uh, I don't know actually. So the answer I've got down here is Chandrilla, if that means anything. Oh. Chandrilla. Oh, the New Republic. That's Did you say New Republic? Yes, Re New Republic. Mon oh, Yes. I wasn't listening. Right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was the first capital of the New Republic, Chandrilla. If, if, I, if you had been listening and, or if I had spoken better and you'd picked up on New Republic, would you have got Chandrilla? Probably not, no. if I'm honest. <laughs> Steel, you're so honest. I yeah, I'm one of the many. I'm reasons. honest and humble. <laughs> the most honest and humble. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, next question. Uh, the military disarmament disarmament act proposed by Mon Mothra, Mon Mothma, and <laughs> implemented shortly after the Battle of Jakku, uh, placed various restrictions on the New Republic military. By what percentage was this centralized military uh, required to reduce? Oh wow! Um, I'm guessing that percentage people. That's some book shit. That is. Mm. <laughs> that's some, uh, that's some aftermath shit. That is. It's over fifty. It's all over. Well, 50. I figured that. Simon, <sighs> is it like seventy-seven? No, you fucking idiot. <laughs> oh, it should be. It should be 77, though, shouldn't it? Yeah, it should be. Is it 83? Yeah. Why isn't Vaughn no, writing God, these so books? Stupid. Right? I know. Is it 87? Yeah. Is it 99? No. <laughs> okay, 
no, like God. there are good reasons for all of these numbers. So obviously, is it two thousand two? Two thousand five, twenty fifteen. It's sadly not. No. Is what it is something it? BBY? It's nine, it's, is it ninety two? It, it's ninety. Ninety. That's okay. That's very, very, Whatever. Very dull. That reminds me of um, the uh, when the after World War One when, uh, but this wasn't this wasn't an actual choice. This was uh, forced. This was forced on uh, Germany. Was they had to um, they had to reduce their uh, their army massively mm-hmm. after, and uh, they only, they broke it. Obviously, leading up to the <laughs> Nazi Germany. Obviously, but uh, it just reminds me of that. Except in that in that they were forced by the opposers as opposed to it being a choice. This is yes. a history podcast. Nope. Uh, it is a history <laughs> yeah, podcast. Yeah, despite... nailing that history, babe. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't, don't worry. I'm sorry. Don't worry. We we can we can edit Vaughn to sound uh, more nice or nicer to us, uh, <laughs> even if it doesn't happen in person. Uh, right, shall we move on to the next question, or are we still got more insults to throw at Steel? No, I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't mean it no. as an insult. I mean it was a little bit okay. of an insult, but I'm, I'm sorry. Have I become Simon? <laughs> no. Attack for no reason. No, I'm I'm sure that'll switch back to... Uh, well, it's probably a little bit different for you guys because you aren't in person, so you aren't just giggling at each other's jokes constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. Is this just a dynamic you. I shifted a little bit? Is this what happens when you're not in a room with Vaughn? <laughs> once you don't, once you have the safety of being in a different <laughs> yeah. room, you just start throwing shit at people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Vaughn doesn't want to insult you quite as much in, as in person, so uh, yeah, mm. it's uh, it's probably a, a good point there, Steele. Um, yeah, so don't worry. Steel and I will one day podcast together and get to insult Vaughn. Yeah, um, that, that'll be yeah. you guys can yeah, insult that, me, be... Simon. You insult yeah, me all the time with your presence. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> once again, this is a history podcast. We can cut literally all of this out. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, though, like. Uh, we're probably going to keep this because of how nicely your insult led on from Steele's earnest attempt to provide some history. <laughs> so, wow, earnest! Thanks, guys. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, ah, uh, no. <laughs> right, question nine. I believe it was capped at a hundred thousand. There, there's some, there's some accuracy to my statement. Fuck you. No, your statement is really accurate. It is. It, it is. It is. It, disarmament is absolutely something that happened from. The treaty after World War One. You are right. I'm aware it does happen right. in other occasions throughout history as well. Thank you. Yes. No. It was. <laughs> right. It was just. Okay. Ha- it was how you said. This needs to be cut out. This needs to be cut out, Simon. But it was how you said. Obviously, it ended with the Nazis. <laughs> it just, I, was I did like, in fact oh say God. that. You did say that, and I was like. I just... oh. I uh, I did uh, I actually I straight up clapped in I forgot I was recording and clapped in front of the microphone then because that got me I did in fact say that I do realize that you now. you did and that's why I was like oh my god Simon don't you dare cut me any of this dick. please you're gonna cut all of this so 
Ron, when you, when you do academic papers from now on, can you finish each one by going and obviously that led to the Nazis? And obviously it ended with the Nazis. <laughs> right, okay, question nine. <laughs> uh, the Galactic Concordance was the historic peace treaty that marked the end of the Galactic Civil War. Who signed it on behalf of the Empire? Didn't it end with the or Nazis? <laughs> Obviously, obviously it ended with the space Nazis. (laughs) I don't even remember the question. Who said what now? No, the bit was in my head. I had to do the bit. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I'm crying. Galactic Concordance was the historic peace treaty that marked the end of the Galactic Civil War. Who signed it on behalf of the Empire or what was left of it? Um, is it this is this is in one of the video games, isn't it? I don't. I I'm imagining it's more book shit to be honest. Um, I I mean, who's I'm just thinking about who's alive at that point. Um, I don't know. Is it Vice Um, Admiral Sloan? Gideon, Uh, not Sloan. No. So the uh, name I have here is. Grand Vizier Mas Ameda? No, really? I mean, <laughs> still says Daniel, and I'll take his word for it. So. I know, I believe yeah, I believe Daniel. I just, I didn't know this. So finding out that Mas Ameda survives the whole thing, for for a context, Mas Ameda is that guy in the prequels that follows Palpatine around everywhere, the blue guy with the horns. Oh, your man. Yeah, All your right. man that shouts, <laughs> Order! <laughs> That guy. Oh, duh. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Vaughn, for that. We need him for this podcast. We need a mass amount to bring order to this podcast. <laughs> that's, Simon, that's uh, supposed to be you. That's supposed to be you. It is, but that got thrown out the window a long time ago when you t- two started insulting each other. Right. I mean, it's one thing you guys insulting me, but when, <laughs> when we're starting insulting each other beyond that, then yeah, things really do be go, go beyond the pale there. Right, okay. <laughs> Let's let's get back to eventually leading to the Nazis or whatever other points we're getting to. Obviously. Uh, <laughs> Obviously. What I what I was trying to uh, say was they broke the treaty when I they know. built up the army past a hundred thousand people. Obviously it ended with the Nazis. <laughs> Obviously. You can't cut this, Simon, because this is going to be a running joke for the rest of the podcast oh. history until one of us dies or oh, gets yeah. bored. <laughs> I am I'd a really professional. Mean... This is my job. You should keep telling yourself that more often before you speak then, Rob, because uh, this, is, this is getting kept in. This is the good stuff. That's what um... Vaughn says in the mirror every morning. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes on it, Twitter and work. completely forgets what she just said. <laughs> Don't worry. If this if this starts to over overrun too much more, I'll just cut the joy stuff and we'll oh, just yeah, present yeah, yeah, the, the quiz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. You'll, you'll just uh, end it <laughs> with the Nazis. With the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Okay. Question ten: Which political organization of various Pacific uh, or pacifist re- uh, republic systems did uh, Duchess Satine lead? So that was what what political now? Organi- which political organization of various pacifist re- uh, republic systems 
did Duchess Satine lead? Is there a name for that? Like the neutral systems? I don't know what... Yeah, the Council of Neutral oh, Systems. Yeah. Boom! Good job, Vaughn. The professional in the room. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Fuck you! <laughs> okay, we have a Revenge of the Sith question. Oh! Oh! In deleted scenes <laughs> from Revenge of the Sith... Okay, continue. I think I know where this Ooh. is going. Okay. Oh, in deleted scenes from Re- Revenge of the Sith, we see Supreme Chancellor Palpatine confronted by a group of senators following the appointment of governors. What is uh, presented to Palpatine in an attempt to reverse this decision? I did not know where that was going. Um, no. I thought you were going to. So, I thought you were going to say about the uh, the deleted scene where they forge the. The, where the group of senators talk about the possibility of rebellion. I don't think I've seen yeah. that deleted scene where they actually talk to Palpatine about it. Yeah, I don't either. Big Daddy Palps. Senpai um, Palps. It was <laughs> petition of 2000, signed by all members of the delegation of 2000, a group of senators concerned by Palpatine's uh, accumulation of executive powers. It officially called for him to cede these powers. I oh. wish they'd kept that in. <laughs> That sounds really yeah. interesting. There you go. There was a whole, we'll, we'll yep. talk about this during the Revenge of the Sith deep dive, but there was a whole uh, subplot with um, with Padme, and uh, the original plan was for it to end with uh, with Padme actually like stabbing Anakin. And uh, it was, it was going to be a whole thing, but she was going to be a much more active character in Revenge of the Sith mm. compared to the... Because she's so active in Attack of the Clones, and then she becomes quite passive in Revenge of the Sith in comparison. There you go. Um, <laughs> next question is bringing back Mon Mothma. So um, another Mon Mothma question for us. Uh, when Mon Mothma publicly denounced the Emperor, which event did she hold him personally responsible for? Ooh, I don't know this one. It's... Unless it's the... it's not. It won't be the destruction of Alderaan, will it? Because that was... Uh... That was bef- that was so, after. So, the answer I have here is the Gorman massacre. The Gorman oh, massacre. Right. I don't know about that one. I think this is more book shit. Yeah, little detail is known in canon beyond that it was the slaughter of peaceful beings, but in legends this occurred when uh, Tarkin, uh, with implied permission from the Emperor, landed his star destroyer on top of peaceful protesters blocking a landing pad. He ju- he just so, squished them. Mm. Yeah, pretty much. Ooh. Just like I'm gonna squish you with my my star destroyer with my big triangle. Yeah, <laughs> triangle of death. I got a big triangle. triangle you don't squish. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Which uh, yeah, as you say, that's uh, kind of deep into the lore on that one. Uh, right, question thirteen: the New Republic Senate. Was, was, broadly speaking, divided into two unofficial and feuding factions. Name or describe one of them. The the New Republic? New Republic. Was that the ones who, like, followed the rules in Mon Mothma and the actual, like, super rebellious wild ones who followed uh, Saw Gerrera? Bogolet! So... <laughs> we have the populists who believe that most authority should reside with Mon individual Mothma. members yeah. of the world. And the centrists who supported a stronger oh. central government. Is this this is oh. the New Republic. This is the New Republic, right? 
Mm-hmm. I think this is yes. from this is taken from a book about Leia. Um, called I think it's called Family Ties, and I, I haven't read it, but there's a there's a story about the Republic splitting up and becoming less and less um, active because obviously it's the right. stories of stories of rebellious forces suddenly having to stop fighting and learn how to govern. You know, right? It's uh, interesting. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds really good. Uh, question 14. What proposed position within the New Republic was Senator Senator Leia Organa running for until the exposure of her parentage forced her uh, resignation? What? I don't I know about any of that. this is from that book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, so I'm just going to say uh, General Secretary. <laughs> Treasurer. Uh, <no> plumber. <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, first senator oh so there you go and then the final question is who was the supreme chancellor of the republic during the great hyperspace disaster 200 years before the events of the phantom menace was it joe biden (laughs) (laughs) yeah he he was only 60 back then (laughs) No, this is this is this uh, is some more book shit. Mm. I don't. I can't yep. read. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, you know about the Nazis. Uh, obviously, right, uh, <laughs> obviously, I know. I know about things that were ended by the Nazis. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh no! Uh, Lena So, whoever that is. I mean, to be honest. Again, Daniel could have written anything, but I'll, I'll go with what he's written. Um, so, yes, Lena So or Sue or Sal. Um, <laughs> so, yes, there we go. Not anything anyone here knows about. Oh, Simon. This isn't a fucking Star Wars podcast. I love, I uh, love listening to you pronounce Star Wars names. It gets me yes. every every week, especially the ones that it I is, don't know either. It is every it's week. even better because I'm just like just watching you try being like, I'm glad I don't have to do that this time. Exactly, because there's like certain levels to this where, obviously, uh, Daniel's the one answering the question, so you know he's he he knows all this stuff. But the fact that there's questions you guys don't even know, mm. and especially steal with with your knowledge of these types of things, um, yeah, it's I've I've got no chance. Might as well ask my mum to read this stuff. Out. Um, I always okay. I always wonder. I've never actually asked Dan if uh, if he makes these with uh, with wikipedia or it's just his own knowledge because i completely believe it's just his own <laughs> knowledge it's, knowing that it's guy. just his own knowledge absolutely um yes unlike uh, me he uh, can absolutely. read <laughs> <laughs> oh this is gonna be a new thing for us isn't it mm. uh right <laughs> uh well this episode has gone completely off the rails yeah um it has. yeah and as, uh, Jesus, is there anything? Is there anything else to add to this particular episode, either about the Nazis or not, or about Joy or not, you have, or about Von you have Von's resignation or mentioned not? Mentioned it so many times that you can't edit it out now. No, <laughs> this is it now. This is it. This is in. Thanks. <laughs> Love it. I don't think there was any anything bad said here. You know. <laughs> you, <laughs> Academically, you raised a flag or two. 
and steal a co- uh, you know responded accordingly mm. and uh, you know we might have sworn at each or at each other you know, <laughs> across that time so I, I think I think considering some of the conversations we have in DMs and WhatsApp groups I think this has been pretty good <laughs> I think uh, it's a great uh, it's it's a great look into what uh, what Vaughn using Twitter is like just uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, beautiful. Right. Um, we should probably close up there before we start any other tangents or uh, certain new jokes that we'll have to carry through for the rest of this, this podcast history. <laughs> um, Vaughn, thank you very much for your um, excellent research and presentation on joy and that, that concept within Star mm. Wars. Um, like I say, I know we've talked nonsense since then, but the first 50 minutes or so of this episode were really good and really stuck to a theme, so congratulations on that. You're welcome <laughs> for all of that hard work. Steel. <laughs> Steel. Vaughn will be in touch about reading lessons. So don't, don't <laughs> Uh, right, okay. Um, this may be the last episode that we record where we're all completely separated just for <laughs> the, the dynamics of the show. Or maybe it'll be the first of many, in which case, look out for more more of these types of conversations. Um, <laughs> we should probably end there. As always, thank you to Daniel for putting the quiz together. Yes, thank you, and Daniel. Thank you to, yes, and uh, Vaughn, thank you for the research. Mm-hmm. Steele, thank you for always uh, just being a excellent contributor and I'm, I'm sorry that you were picked upon at times so um, <laughs> ho- hopefully you'll hopefully you'll feel good enough to come back in the future um if if steel is not feeling good enough to come back in the future and you would like to take his place please uh message uh, vaughn's uh, twitter account no please don't uh, <laughs> please don't <laughs> please message anybody but us <laughs> <laughs> please send in your best George Lucas impression because if we lose steel oh, yeah. that's like 50, that's 50% of the show gone right there yeah that's fair that's fair you just pull me out of the bin uh, every once in a while to do a George Lucas <laughs> impression and then put me back in the bin <laughs> okay right um, from Vaughn from Steel from George Lucas and myself Simon thank you very much for listening and we'll have another episode for in the near future goodbye bye see you later